pray together. Father, thank you for giving us a cool place to meet. Thank you for air conditioning. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you for the time that you've given us to be together, to think and talk more about you as always. We look to you to teach us, to work in us by your Spirit so that the things we talk about will not just be ideas, but that you would drive them into our hearts and into our minds and transform us, transform our thinking and so transform our living. We ask that you would do this. We ask that you would do it for the glory of your Son. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Okay. Tonight we're going to finish up the topic of angelology. We may get through this early, and if we do, that will leave some extra time for our second class. Okay? We're going to talk tonight, first of all, about the origin and the nature of demons. Now, the origin and nature of demons are not stated directly in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that says a demon is a fallen angel. But I think that the evidence is very strong that that is what they are. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, there's kind of an oblique comment about where people will be sent at the end of the sheep and the goat's judgment. And it says that they will be sent into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, Unless the demons are some other category of being, and I don't think they are, it would seem to be indicating that his angels are the demons. They are the ones who have joined him. Uh, in Revelation 12:7, there's a dis- there's a discussion of the dragon and his angels, and in that context, <coughs> the dragon is labeled. Turn it Revelation 12. It says, And war broke out in heaven, Revelation 12, 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now we will probably get to this event in our discussion of eschatology. I believe that it is a future event, but our concern right now is that it says he was cast to earth and his angels were cast out with him. Again, evidence that the demons are fallen angels like he is. In Matthew 12, 24, Jesus is called Beelzebub. Do any of you remember the book called Lord of the Flies? Okay. Lord of the Flies is an English translation of Beelzebub. Did you know that? Beelzebub is Baal Zebub or Baal Zebul. Baal is Lord and Zebul is flies. Okay? It's a very disrespectful, contemptuous term 
calling Satan the Lord of the Flies is like calling him the God of the Dunghill, something like that. But that that book and that movie was about Satan worship, wasn't it, really? Those kids who got lost on the island, those of you who read that or saw that, remember? They got involved in some kind of demonic worship. Anyway, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies, and he is called the ruler of the demons. Now, you put this and you put this and you put this together, and you seem to be getting the idea very clearly that his angels are the demons. You get it? It's not that hard. This is not disputed, but it's really not stated anywhere clearly in Scripture. Now, we do know that demons seek to enter and control people. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17 and look at that incident. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is, and it's interesting, my Bible says an epileptic, but literally it's moonstruck and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. So demons, in some way, can go into people. Now, we will talk about what exactly that is in a little while. But if you go to Acts chapter 5, and the reason I'm doing this is to show you a parallel... In Acts chapter 5, there's an interesting statement in the incident of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says to Ananias, you all know this story, right? He says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to the light of the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, it doesn't say that Satan is in the person, but it does say that Satan has filled his heart. And by the way, that term filled is the same term that's used in Ephesians when Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Which raises some interesting issues. But there is some kind of a parallel between what demons seek to do to people and what Satan seems to be doing to Ananias and Sapphira in this particular case. Okay? Now, don't push this statement too far when I say control I don't mean that Ananias and Sapphira had become zombie robots, you know, walking with their eyes closed like this, and that Satan was totally running the show. But there's some kind of influence going on there. And we'll come back to Ananias and Sapphira. All right, we know that evil angels join Satan in warfare against God. We looked at that. We already saw that in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 9... Um, there's an incident of them fighting against God. Let's take a look at that one. Revelation 9:13. 
And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now this is a very interesting incident. If you remember, it's in either First or Second Kings, there's a time when we're given a vision of what's going on in heaven and God says, who will go down and deceive the prophets? And an angel steps forward and says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, of Baal's prophets. Remember that? You asked me about that last week. Do you, do you remember where that was, Mary? Exactly. Yeah. It's Second Kings or something? Yeah, okay. Well, that incident, like this incident, is a little interesting because you have to stop and think, is this, are, are these angels good angels or fallen angels? Okay? Now, in the case in the Old Testament where the guy says, I'll go be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, I think that that's a good angel going to do damage to a false god. In this case, I think that these are fallen angels. Now, take a look and see if you can see why one would come to that conclusion. In, in Revelation chapter 9, and look at verse 14. What does it say? Okay, Vicki, you said the key word. It says, release the four angels who are bound. Now, if these were holy angels, would there be any need for them to be bound? They would do what, what God told them to do, wouldn't they? So I think the obvious conclusion is that these are fallen angels. Um, in Daniel 10, there's a discussion of, is it Gabriel or Michael? Anybody remember? I think it's Michael. He says he's coming to talk to Daniel, but he was held back by the prince of Persia on the way. Remember that incident? Yeah, Is it Michael? Okay. Um, there's a case where we've got good angels fighting against fallen angels. Okay? And we saw the same thing going on in Revelation chapter uh, 12. So again, all these things seem to suggest that demons are fallen angels. Um, turn to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. This is an interesting verse in a very interesting passage. We'll start with verse 3. John says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Now, in this context... If you look at verses 1 and 2, you can see that we're discussing things that are symbolic. Okay, what does it say in verse 1 and, one and 2 of this chapter? Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the, moon, with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. What Old Testament incident does that make you think of? Anybody? Tommy? Okay, what about Joseph? Okay, Joseph has a dream 
in which we've got the sun and the moon and 12 stars. And in that dream, they represent basically his parents and his siblings, him and his 11 brothers. Okay? Now that, that symbolism from that dream appears here. Okay? Now when we move forward and we come to verse 3, there's the description of the dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. That's borrowing imagery from Daniel chapter 7, which we'll look at later. And when it says, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth, here, stars probably doesn't refer to the same thing that it referred to in verses 1 and 2. Now, because in verses 1 and 2, who were the stars? His brothers. It's the 12 patriarchs, right? What justification could we have, and those of you who are here for the hermeneutics class, what justification do we have on the basis of hermeneutical principles, proper ways of studying scripture, to say that in verse 1, the stars represent people, and in verse 4, the stars represent angels or demons? Normally, within the same context, a term will represent the same thing as you go through it. Okay? Any idea? Paul? Um, there's two, two different signs here. Okay, two different signs. Exactly right. Keep going. Okay, okay. Think about the Old Testament background of the two signs. The first sign has as its Old Testament background what? Joseph's dream, as Tommy said, right? The second sign has as its background what? Daniel chapter 7. Okay? So the terminology is quite different. We know from Daniel chapter 7 and from reading further in this chapter that the dragon is who? The dragon is Satan. So when it says he drew a third of the stars out of heaven with him, okay, it makes sense to say this isn't talking about the same thing it was talk that, that the previous verses were talking about because this is from an entirely different context. Okay? Now, putting together what we've seen earlier, which is that Satan is a fallen angel and the demons are fallen angels, and then we go on through this passage and we have a discussion of the dragon and his angels fighting the holy angels... Okay? That would suggest that the term stars is being used here to refer to other angels. And most people would conclude that this statement that he drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth is a reference to one third of the angels joining him in his rebellion and being transformed by that act into what? into demons, okay? So on the basis of this, many people would argue, most people would argue, that a third of the angels in the universe are demons. Now, that's kind of an interesting thought. That would mean that two-thirds of them are holy, which is good, because we want more on our side than are on their side. But 
on the other hand, I think the other guys don't play according to the rules. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of balances things out. It's like the terrorists and the, you know, all that. Okay? All right, any questions on what we've looked at here? I think the evidence is pretty clear that the demons are fallen angels, that they were created holy, just like all the other angels, and they were created in what particular way? What's special about the creation of angels as opposed to the creation of humans? What's that? Okay, they're sexless. Good. What else? That, and by the way, that leads to what I'm looking for. Sexless creatures, Becca? Exactly. Ex, yeah, direct creation. Ex nihilo or something like that. They're individual creations. They were not produced by reproduction. And that's one of the reasons they're so different than us. Okay. Now, this is an interesting concept here. And I, I borrowed this from, I think, Enz's Moody Handbook of Theology. What we've got here is a chart dividing up the angels into the various categories into which they fit. All the angels started out as holy. The holy angels stayed holy. The fallen angels fell. So now we've got two categories, holy angels and fallen angels. Now within the fallen angels, we've got two categories. We've got free and active demons and confined demons. And within the confined demons, we've got temporarily confined demons and permanently confined demons. Okay? Now let's look at these scriptures because they're really quite interesting. Let's go to 1 Timothy 5.21. I don't remember what that one says, but we'll see in a moment. This is the passage for the holy angels. Okay. Paul says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. What Paul is doing is he's invoking the fact that God and the angels are watching Timothy in what he does in the church. And by the way, there are these little hints in Scripture about the angels watching what happens in the church. Remember we mentioned that last week? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they're looking for evidence of proper submission to authority in the church, that the women should be demonstrating submission to the men, and that we all should be demonstrating submission to Christ, right? Ephesians chapter 3 says that within a church composed of all kinds of different people, Jews and Gentiles, different cultures, different socioeconomic classes, different sexes, all that order within the church, which is what the second half of Ephesians is all about, glorifies God. And it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that they are watching. It says, This is being done to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, catch the next phrase, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Now, in a sense, that is 
probably the most fundamental statement of the purpose of the church. We got all kinds of ideas about what the church is for, but ultimately the purpose of the church is to demonstrate to an invisible audience the manifold wisdom of God as he does something which nobody would think could be done, which is take a bunch of knuckleheads like us and enable us to get along together and to serve God together. And the audience is the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You see it there? The principalities and powers in the heavenly places are what? It's angels. Now, I don't think Paul is being specific as to which angels are watching. Personally, I think both the fallen angels and the holy angels are watching. I think the holy angels are watching what's going on in the church and they're praising God and saying, well, look at that. And the fallen angels are looking on at what's going on in the church and they're fretting. They're saying, if God can pull that off, it doesn't look too good for us. But they have no choice because there's no way back into God's good favor for them. Do you see that? So I, I think both of those categories, both the holy angels and the fallen angels, are represented here. Okay, now Matthew 25, I think that's supposed to be 41. Let's take a look at that for the category of the fallen angels. I think that's a typo. Yes, that's supposed to be 2541. Remember, we looked at that passage, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the broad category. The devil and his angels are the fallen angels. Now, pre-active demons, you know what's in this passage, right? In Ephesians chapter 6, 11 and 12, what's that about? You don't even have to look. Probably. Last chapter of the book of Ephesians, the big thing it talks about is what? Yeah, putting on the armor of God for the purpose of protection in from the fiery darts, from spiritual warfare, exactly. Okay? The ones who are fighting us are obviously free and active. But there are some demons who are confined. Now let's go to Luke chapter 8.31 and see what that says about confined demons. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. And they're going to be, they're actually going to be here. Okay, they're a subcategory. You're right on target. Okay. In the case where Jesus is freeing the Gerasene demoniac. In verse 31, it says, they begged him not to command them to go into the abyss. Now, the abyss is some kind of a temporary holding place for demons. We know from, I believe, Revelation chapter 6 that those locusts come out, up out of the abyss. Remember that? Um, these demons say, don't send us there. So apparently that's a place where demons can be sent and they can be confined. Now, there are temporarily confined demons. This is what we read earlier about the demons who were bound at the river Euphrates. 
and also the demons in the abyss. Go to Revelation 9 and we'll see that. I think we looked at the latter part of that, but not the, uh, not the earlier part. Look at Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke rose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came forth upon the earth, and to them was given power. As the scorpions of the earth have power, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth nor any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now there's some debate as to whether these locusts are just some kind of specially prepared insect or whether they're actually demons. Okay? Now, to me, where it says in verse 2 that, a, that an, a star falls from heaven and opens the bottomless pit and lets these things out, sounds to me like they're demons and the bottomless pit is the same abyss that was spoken of here. Okay, now, we do know for sure that later on in this chapter, those four angels, as John was pointing out, that were bound will be released. Okay? Those, those demons, at least, are in the category of being temporarily confined. That they're... Uh, uh, show me where you are. Um, where you talk about the angels that are loose to bring the glass at the end of... I'm in chapter 9. Read it to me from chapter 9 where you, where you see that. You, you might be looking at a different passage. That's why I'm asking you to double check it. I'm talking about the passage that you first quoted uh, earlier. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the yeah. The, okay, let me let me read it again. It's Revelation nine thirteen, and th this will clear it up. Then the sixth angel sounded. Now that's a good angel in heaven. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, "Release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates." Okay, now the, the angels that I'm concerned about here are the bound ones, not the angels that are blowing the trumpet and the ones that are going to release them. Okay, and I think that's <coughs> I think that's how I cause confusion here. Okay, so these demons are are confined, but apparently only temporarily, meaning there was a time when they were free. They're confined now, and they're going to be released. I was just going to say that another <coughs> case. Let me say that again for the tape for people who are listening. Okay, 
Um, the observation is that in verse 11, these locusts have as them the king, uh, has, have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, and that is Satan, which is more evident that these are demons and not just some kind of supernatural insects. Excellent. Okay. Now, the last category is the permanently confined demons. Let's take a look at them because that will be an introduction to us to one of the topics we're going to look at in a few minutes. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. I'm going to stop right there. Okay. Some have already been placed in chains. And then you go to Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Most would consider both of those verses to be talking about the same incident and most would tie it back to Genesis or, or many would tie it back to Genesis chapter 6 which somebody brought up last week and we'll get to that in a few moments. The whole question of what was going on in Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of God went into the daughters of men. That baffling event. Okay. We're going to get to that in just a moment. I want to go through this slide very quickly. This is all stuff that you know. Some roles of the demons and fallen angels. They promote rebellion against God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. They promote idolatry. Deuteronomy 32, 17 and 1 Corinthians 12, 10. These are interesting. You might want to look these up on your own after class. It's quite fascinating. They promote legalism and licentiousness. Now that's a kind of a funny combination, isn't it? Legalism is being too strict. Licentiousness is being too loose. Both of those are spiritual errors. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 and 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 to 4. Now, generally speaking, the demons oppress mankind physically, mentally, and spiritually. You can particularly see that in the ways that they are harassing people in the Gospels when Jesus comes along and frees and helps these people. And they generally attack the saints in various ways. They hate us. Why? Why do they hate us? Okay, Bob. Yeah, because we're evidence of the ultimate victory of God, right? Because, Andrew? Absolutely. Absolutely. We were fallen and then we were saved. And when we got saved, we started to bear accurately the image of God that we were designed to bear that we never did before. And that image of God is an affront to them because... God is building into us holiness and holiness is something that they can never have again. I think there are a lot of reasons why they hate us. Now the eternal destiny of the demons and fallen angels is not stated but it is, well, it's stated in Matthew 25:41. The eternal fire at present they are defeated but not neutralized. Colossians 2:15 talks about Christ's victory over them. 
But 1 Peter 5, 7 says what? Satan is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's probably not just him. It's probably him and his demons. He's the representative. So they are out there looking to cause us trouble. They know their judgment is certain, but they continue to oppose God and his program. Okay? This again confirms the idea that they cannot be redeemed. All right. Unless you have questions about this, I want to push on because there are some disputed issues we need to look at. Becca. I, I just know why Satan may have already addressed this. Did you talk about human possession? We're getting there next. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Yes. So Abaddon is Satan? Abaddon? That title? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Prince, king, in either case it means ruler. I don't think so. I don't think so. He's called Abaddon, Apollyon. He's got a lot of names. I think that they're the same person. Okay, now there's an error in this slide, so I'm just going to push through, okay? We've talked about this. Do all people have guardian angels? We're not sure. We do know that believers have angels looking out for them in some way from Hebrews, right? Are angels the spirits of dead people? No. No. Okay. Now, the question. Can believers be demon-possessed? Okay. Part of the issue in settling this question is simply a matter of translation, as you will see. Now, here's some things we need to think about as we consider this question. After Pentecost, there are no clear statements about demons indwelling believers. There are a lot of cases in the Gospels where people who seem at least to want to be right with God are having problems with demons, at least some cases. But after Pentecost, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, there are no clear statements about demons indwelling believers. At least not that I'm aware of. <coughs> there are no commands in the epistles telling us to cast out demons. Did you ever notice that? It's in the Gospels, but it's not in the epistles. Okay? Now, the term that is used in some translations, the phrase demon-possessed, is misleading. And I think some of this goes back to Old English. Okay, in Old English, to say you are possessed of a demon could mean that the demon has you or you have the demon, couldn't it? Because there's an ambiguity, ambiguity there. Possessed of a demon. I am possessed of a car. In Old English, that makes sense. I have a car. Of course, they didn't have cars back then. but Right? Or it could mean the car has me. Now, this phrase, demon-possessed, isn't really a good translation of anything in Greek. Where you see that phrase in the translations that use it, you will see the Greek word daimonizomai, which would best be translated demonized. Okay? And it seems to be equivalent to the phrase meaning to have a demon rather than to be owned by a demon. Do you see the distinction? The phrase demon-possessed seems to be saying that the demon owns me. But daimonizomai suggests that I, maybe not own the demon, but I have the demon. Okay, He is associated with me in some way. 
It doesn't mean to be possessed by a demon. Now let's look at Acts 16, 16 and Matthew 8, 16, okay? Acts 16, 16. Okay. <clears throat> now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, now here's the way my Bible translates it, possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Who's got the NASB? What does it say? Having a spirit. Okay. That's a better translation. Now here, possessed with a spirit, that's not even that doesn't even make sense in English to me, honestly. Okay? But the idea is that she had a spirit, not that the spirit has her. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter eight, verse sixteen. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were, my Bible says, demon-possessed, but it's the Greek word daimonizomai. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Now, it's interesting. <clears throat> when you've got someone who's daimonizomai, does Jesus take the person away from the demon? What does he do? He takes the demon away from the person. Okay, right there, that tells you something. Okay, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. There's a very, very important piece of evidence for this discussion there. Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 43. Now, what Jesus is saying here is an illustration, but it's an illustration based on fact. And the facts that he tells us here are facts that we could not know unless he told us. In other words, this is a very important revelation. He says in verse 43, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes and finds it empty, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Now, those of you who heard me preach on Sunday, we talked about the temple, right? And what do we say the ultimate temple of God is? What's the ultimate temple of God? It's us. It's a human being, right? We are designed to be a habitation of God. Temple means house of God. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We talk about the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now what Jesus is saying here is that human beings essentially have this capability to be spiritual dwelling places. Now, in the illustration he's giving here, what he's basically saying is that if you're an unbeliever and somehow you get the demons to go out of you and you clean your act up, but you don't let anybody move into the house, guess what? It's easy for him to break back in. Okay? But the idea, the fundamental concept here is that a human being is a house for spirits. Interesting thought, isn't it? Any of you from philosophy remember the phrase, the ghost in the machine? Remember that? Philosophers and scientists and theologians have wondered how it is 
that a human spirit, which is immaterial, can operate a human body, which is physical. You know, how, how, does, a, how does a spirit control a body? The ghost in the machine is the spirit in the body. Okay? Somehow we are designed to be spiritual houses. And you look at this and you look at this evidence and I believe the proper conclusion is that we can have demons in us, but demons cannot own us. Now, having said that, the illustration that Jesus gives says what? If you don't have God to protect your spiritual house and defend it, then you got no way to be sure that something from the outside isn't going to come in and start trashing your house. Okay? Now, let's go through the arguments here. Can de believers be demon-possessed? There are two views. Okay? The no view says that the Holy Spirit and demons cannot occupy the same place. It also says that there are no specific cases in the New Testament of demon possession by believers. Well, that's probably disputable. The yes view, yes, believers can be demon possessed, yes, but make sure you understand that it's demonization. It's having a demon. It's not being owned by a demon. Okay, the reasons for this are, here are some cases of demonization of believers. King Saul, wasn't he demonized? Wasn't he harassed by a spirit? And yet when David would play music, that would gain him a certain amount of freedom. Okay? There's a bent-over woman who comes to Jesus, and she's a believer, and Jesus heals her. And he says something about this spirit that has oppressed her for a number of years. Peter, didn't Jesus say, that Satan is going to sift you like wheat. He's going to fill your heart to lie. I think that terminology is used. It's certainly used in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it? Okay, this bothers people. Okay? I'm probably upsetting some of you. But turn with me back to Acts chapter 5. And just look at the evidence. Were Ananias and Sapphira believers? <clears throat> I think they were. Peter says, Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? By the way, Ananias never said anything to the Holy Spirit, did he? The lying that was going on was inside of him. While it remained, was it not yours was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Heart, You have not lied to men, but to God. The Ananias was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But at the time that this happened, he was not filled by the Holy Spirit, was he? He was filled by... What's it say? It says Satan... <coughs> Okay. Now, we may have time to stu study this whole concept of filling, but filling basically means to come under the influence of, in the sense that a person would come under the influence of alcohol if he chooses to drink. Bob? Uh, necessarily 
Well, <clears throat> that's an interesting question. I guess the best way to respond to your or to the observation that you're making is that Peter is not rebuking Satan. He's rebuking Ananias because Ananias allowed Satan to fill him. Okay. Okay. It's not the devil made me do it. Well, not, no, it's not the devil made you do it, but the devil whispering in his ear. Well, the, the devil might have been whispering in his ear, but the, the, point, the point that I'm getting to here, the broad point is that believers can be influenced by demons. Whatever form you want to call that influence, if you want to call it an outside influence whispering in your ear, if you want to call it inviting them in, and we'll see that there seems to be evidence for that, it is possible for demons to influence believers. Now, defining the extent of that influence and saying how far it can go, that's all very hard to do. Okay? But I, I, I do think that the evidence is that there is influence. Okay? Look at the next thing. Ephesians chapter 4, 26. Paul says don't give the devil a foothold. And in the context, you give the devil a foothold by causing disunity within the body. Causing fights, you know. Um, anything that interrupts the unity of the body can give the devil a foothold. Now, some people would say that's just a foothold in the group. But I would say, well, a foothold in the group has to come from a foothold on the individuals. So there's some kind of influence going on here. Um, both Peter and Ananias and Sapphira are filled by Satan Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and then this last one I put this down as number four okay and this is experience this isn't scripture okay so it's not authoritative but there are persistent reports over and over and over again and have been for centuries by missionaries of believers who come under the influence of demons. And in my experience, it happens with people who, before they were saved, had involvement with demons of various occult types. Sure, sure. No, no, not at all. It's a hard subject. what you just said and, and sort of summarize it for the benefit of the people who will be listening to this. Okay, Mary's comment is we have to be careful what we're saying about demonization of believers because it raises the question of what advantage a believer has over an unbeliever. And the answer is that a believer has the resources of God to fight spiritual warfare. Okay, We have what's listed in Ephesians chapter 6. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the Word. We have faith. You know, We've got all those things that are listed. We have resources to fight 
against spiritual forces. Unbelievers have no resources. They don't have a single thing that is actually powerful against the occult world. Now, remember that I've been very vague about my definition of what this thing is that happens to believers. I'm not convinced that we can answer the question of whether a believer can actually have a demon inside of him or he can simply behave in such a way that maybe God gives the demon permission to go down and harass that person. Okay? Some of you have heard of... Um, who's the guy who wrote The Bondage Breaker? Uh, Neil Anderson. Some of you have heard of Neil Anderson. Neil Anderson has this whole theology of demons and believers, and his theology says that when a believer persists in sin, God will sometimes discipline that believer by allowing a demon to go and harass him. And he would base that argument on the statements in the New Testament where church leaders are told to hand somebody over to Satan for the mortification of the flesh, okay? And he would base it on Ephesians chapter 4, talking about giving the devil a foothold and those kinds of things. I'm not convinced that he's really got it right, but I think he's on to something. I think God may at times actually allow demons to be his agents in the chastising of believers who persist in unrepentant sin. Just an idea. I don't think that a, a believer who's walking in fellowship with God and seeking to grow in Christ is an open target for, for Satan or the demons in any internal way. Now, I think they can do the things that they can do on the outside to almost anybody, but then what do we know? There's this invisible battle going on. The angels and the demons are fighting. There are guardian angels helping us in some way. You know, it may have something to do with God telling, you know, if, if I'm walking in sin, God may tell my guardian angel, well, back off a little while and let him get pushed around a little bit. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But I do think the evidence of Scripture is that we can be attacked, at least from the outside. We can even be influenced. We can even be filled if, we give Satan or his demons opportunity. Bob? Becca? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Hit me. Okay, so uh, help me understand number one of this argument because uh, you're using Saul as an example uh -huh. for this argument too. But it seems like I remember you saying Saul was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit like True, true. His, his condition is not exactly the same as ours. You're absolutely right. So wouldn't Saul's example tend to support argument A more than argument B? Well, okay, but my question was not, can Christians be demon, demonized? It was, can believers be demonized? Okay. So I phrased it in a broader way. Okay. But you're absolutely right to draw a distinction between 
the case of Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, we have resources that they didn't have. I think you're I think you're absolutely right about that. And yes. even Peter in, in that if we're making that distinction. Yeah, then there's the Peter, question of was Peter Peter right. that ha, that, that happens to Yeah, he was not indwelt by the Spirit either. That's right. But and, and that Sapphira, if they were believers as we yeah. read the scriptures to be probably they're, they're a pretty clear case. Now, really, the only thing that I want to establish from this is that we shouldn't be cocky about demons, okay? We shouldn't be cocky about them, and we shouldn't be cavalier and say, it doesn't matter if I sin because they can't bother me because the Holy Spirit's in me, and he would never let them even step onto the doorstep of my person. You know, I think I think that that's a dangerous attitude. Bob? Okay. Would Hodge be I'm not following that up at, at this time. But could he be a believer who's well see I'm just gonna guess, okay? Someone who has been deeply involved in a religion that is a false religion. And all religions except biblical Christianity are false religions, who who then comes to Christ may well have been a person who was consorting with demons. He may have been using the power of demons. He may have opened himself to their influence through a number of procedures in his religion. Then when he comes to Christ, I think that there's a battle over such people. And and I've seen it. Oh, oh. Yeah, the death of a guru. Yeah. There, there, you can find lots of accounts of people who were deeply involved in false religions who come to Christ and find themselves involved in this spiritual battle. And it's like Satan doesn't want to let go of them. Now, if that is true, experience suggests that it's true. I'm not sure that scripture tells us that it's true. But if it's true it's very important to remember that that person is just as secure in Christ as any other believer. Now, he may have a bigger battle to get free from the spiritual forces that once controlled him because they value him and they're not going to let go without a fight. But he's just as secure in Christ. He is just as sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is just as guaranteed that he will receive his inheritance and the gift of eternal life as any other believer. But, you know, to some extent... If he served Satan powerfully in his early days, you know, he may be subject to certain influences that others weren't subject to. And and again, you know, here we're building theology on experience, and that's why I'm trying to be tentative about it. Right? There are some questions that just aren't fully answered in Scripture. Okay. Um, Part three. Okay, I think we've been through all of this. Let me just say the last one. The real issue is the difference between the demonization of unbelievers who are helpless and believers who have both ultimate freedom in Christ and resources in Christ. Okay? Vicki? Sure. Sure. 
Yeah, that, that's a great question, Vicki. Um, the question is, are demons nourished by occupying a person? And, and I, I think, I'm not sure that the term nourished is quite the right word, but I think, I think they find it enjoyable and advantageous. They want to do it. You know, I mean, I, a demon would rather have a body to push around, I guess. I mean, think about the Gerasene demoniac. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure that we can know exactly what it means, but I think what Jesus is basically saying is that a demon wants to be in a human inside of a human being the way a human being would rather be at an oasis than out in the middle of the desert. I mean, it's just a better place. Um, you know, it, it's hard to go farther than that. You know, look at how hard it is to get demons out of people once they're in. You know, and, and, and again, it's building theology on experience and nothing that I'm about to say is proven, but it's my opinion that both believers and unbelievers open themselves for demonic influence when they persist in sin, certain kinds of sin. And I think, I think God allows the demons to go into the person under those circumstances. Now, it's probably different for a believer than it is for an unbeliever. I don't want to say that... I'm, I'm still trying to avoid saying that a believer can have spirits in him. I'm just not sure whether that's true, but it's very clear that an unbeliever can. And it seems to be related to sin. You know, and if you look at the occult practices that people perform in, you know, in world religions, a lot of the things they do that lead to demonization are, you know, sacrifices, ritual sex, drinking blood, you know, all kinds of flagrant sins that are, go openly against God's expressed will. And that seems to bring the demons in. And it's almost like they make this exchange. Like, I'm going to sin against God really, really flagrantly so that you, demons, will come into me and give me power that I want. It's almost like this arrangement. But of course, the one who's really getting duped is who? It's always the human being. Because the demons that go into you never really submit to your control. They may pretend to. They may go along with you for a while, but they always turn around and stab you in the back. At least that's my experience. Um, but, you know, again, this is a lot of speculation. Um, we better take a break. I didn't expect this to go this long.